Well, if you haven't already, turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. Grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 809, page 809. And we continue in our series that we've entitled Upside Down Kingdom, a study surrounding Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we've broken this series into a four uh, parts or aspects of what it means to live that upside-down life, that kingdom agenda life that we have in this first part of the series we've put our attention on what is called the Beatitudes kingdom attitudes that we are called to have as followers of Jesus Christ and there as we're learning now into our fourth week into this series there's a logical progression that takes place in Jesus's preaching of these attitudes the first one as we remember was that we needed to be poor in spirit realizing that we have nothing within us that commends us to God, that we as Christians must affirm our spiritual bankrupt lives. And as we begin to understand that, we graduate, if you will, to the second beatitude, which is the idea that we are called to mourn, that we are to be mourners. Now, what are we to mourn about? Jesus tells us we are to mourn uh, about our sin. As sinners and as people living in a sinful society, there is much for us to mourn about and to be sorrowful about with regards to our breaking of fellowship with our God. And then that moves us to the third one, and that was that we are to be meek. As we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt people because of our sins, because we know that we have failed God and failed others, When others fail us, we are quick to forgive them. We do not seek revenge, but we are meek and mild to those around us. And this brings us to our text this morning, where today we will find what it means when Jesus says, in essence, happy are the hungry, happy are the hungry. So let's go ahead and stand one last time for the reading of God's Word, and uh, we'll read the passage, uh, Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1. Then I'll ask for God's blessing on our time together. It says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me read that again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. God, as we open up your word and as we hear your son teach us once again, we are reminded that these aren't suggestions, but they are commands, a calling for us as followers of yours. And Lord, before us, you bring the prospect of being satisfied. And Lord, I know that my deepest desire is to be satisfied in in this life. And Lord, I know that my listeners as well desire to be satisfied. And yet, Lord, we know that there are many options to that satisfaction. And it is here that Jesus says that the only way we will find true satisfaction is is when we hunger and thirst for you and the things that surround you, your righteousness. So, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts, you would show us where we are dabbling in areas that we shouldn't, and that we would truly and intently and continually hunger and thirst after you and you alone. We pray for your blessing on this time in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated.
<clears throat> it has been said that we are what we eat. Now that may scare some of us in light of what we have been putting into our bodies on a daily basis, but the idea behind that statement or slogan is the idea that we need to be careful about what we are consuming as people. And while that is true for us physically, there's also great truth spiritually as well. Many of us would be utterly astonished at all the things that we put into our bodies. Sadly, many of us don't have any idea of what we're putting into our bodies, and so I thought I would help you by giving you a, uh, a snapshot of what the average American human being is eating on a yearly basis. So let's get to the good stuff, red meats. We eat 110, I know it's hard to read there, but 110 pounds of red meat a year. Someone should say an amen. That's good stuff, okay? Well, with that comes all kinds of fats and oils and all that. You're consuming about 85 pounds of fats and oils a year. And then when we start feeling bad about those things, we start pumping in the fruits, 273 pounds of fruits uh, a year, 470, I believe, I'm sorry, 415 pounds of uh, vegetables, so we can all say that we are somewhat vegan, right? We can all feel good about ourselves. I mean, think about it. For every pound of red meat we eat, we eat four pounds of vegetables. That's my kind of vegan diet, all right? And then if you notice, uh, we get farther down the list and we see that uh, there's all kinds of uh, ca- uh, calories and, and sweeteners and cereals and all that. Notice uh, uh, the amount of milk we drink. This is an amazing thing, whether through cheese and dairy products and all that. 600 pounds of our diet each year are a, are a part of uh, dairy-type things. Now, that uh, they cut it out. I don't know. Did you add it somewhere else there, Dennis? On the, there you go. You made it bigger. That's a good AV guy. 29 pounds of French fries, sinners. That's what you eat on a yearly basis. And then you wash it down with 23 pounds of pizza. Okay? And if that wasn't enough, you head over to the Dairy Joy in Hinkley and you get 24 pounds of ice cream. I mean... This message is going to hit right between your eyes. I just want you to know that you're going to be convicted, you sick people. You drink 53 gallons of soda, okay, and all of that then, and by the way, then, then 273, uh, 2,000, so let me see that again, not 2,000, 2.736 pounds, almost 3 pounds of salt. That's why you need the soda, by the way. Okay, you got to wash that salt down. And as a result, we consume 2,700 calories a day. Now, that's a humorous way of looking at all that we consume on a daily and, and yearly basis. But we need to recognize and know that if we're going to live physically healthy lives, we got to know what we're eating. And a lot of us, and yours truly, I could do a far better job of this, okay? I'm not pointing any fingers uh, because, quite frankly, Amanda's been keeping track, and that was me, by the way, just so you know. But, But even greater than the physical side of monitoring what we eat and drink is the spiritual. And Jesus shares words to us, not about physical hunger and thirst per se, but giving us a physical picture of a spiritual understanding that is so foundational to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ wants you and I to live healthy lives. 
Now, healthy, physical, yes, that's a part of it. But to the crux of the matter is the spiritual side of things. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we must be vigilant in our pursuit of spiritual health. Now, when Jesus shares in our text this morning, hungry or blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, there is this idea that God is reminding us of our need. Even Jesus, when he walked on this earth, being the Son of God, but incarnate in flesh, we see over and over again that one of the proofs that Jesus was God and yet was man was that he hungered and thirsted. And so what we're going to see is the, the aspect or the, the uh, idea that to hunger and thirst is to be human. It's to be human. And there's no doubt that the listeners of Jesus' sermon were human beings. We have no question about that because he was talking to them as hungering and thirsting. But notice, what are they to hunger and thirst after? It's for righteousness, and there's a reason. Because in that righteousness, they will be satisfied. How many of you this morning, and I, I want to see a show of hands, how many of you want to be satisfied in this life? Okay, if you don't have your arm up, I'll talk with you later because something's not right in your head. Nobody gets up and says, I hope I live an unsatisfying day this morning. We all want satisfaction. We want our lives to mean something. We want uh, our lives to have blessing in them. We want to know that our life is making a difference and that it's filled with contentment and joy. Every human being longs for satisfaction. Now the question is, where are we going to get it? Just as in uh, our food choices, we go into the world that's the grocery store of everything. And so in this grocery store of this world, we have good foods and we have not so good foods. We have choices we can make that can make us healthy, that can bring uh, great joy and fulfillment in our lives, or we can choose from, if you will, the junk food sections that for a moment, for a season of time, will satisfy our hunger, but as in the junk food, usually it gets us hungering for more, right? It, for only a short time, takes care of our need. And what Jesus wants us to know is that the endless pursuit of hunger and the pursuit of more things in this world can be satisfied in a relationship with him. But sadly, our world seems to say no to that. Even those who have so much money and so much at their uh, hands, uh, they find themselves wasting it away pursuing the things of this world. There's no greater picture than that than the life of Elvis Presley. You know who Elvis Presley is. I don't have to explain that. One of the greatest uh, entertainers of all time, the, the, the king of, of rock and roll. This guy had everything. Even back in the, in the uh, uh, generation ago, we, we saw a man who was raking in millions upon millions of dollars. He was a successful entertainer. His estate in Memphis uh, called Graceland was a palace that was fit for a king, no pun intended. And it was said that he had more gold in Graceland than the gold in Fort Knox. I mean, everything was gold-plated, even the small stuff. His toenail clippers were gold-plated. His hair dryer was gold-plated. His... Um, uh, hair clippers were gold-plated. He wanted to drive around in style, and so each one of the cars that he had, he had more than a dozen of them, all had car paint that had crushed diamonds in it so that it would sparkle. This guy made sure even the small stuff showed that he had everything he ever wanted. In fact, it was said if it was invented, Elvis had it. 
He had it. And then it wasn't enough because it wasn't just the things of this world, but he had to go to things that would uh, unnaturally, if you will, uh, raise his satisfaction. Possessions weren't enough, so he moved to drugs and booze. He went to women. He had everything, and he was the envy of many people in the world during his day. His sensuality was legendary. And yet, here's what we know of Elvis from his closest family and friends. He was an absolutely miserable man. He was so miserable that he became what he ate, and in a tragic overdose, it would take his life. Here's a guy who had everything. He should have been satisfied. But as we read more and more and hear from his family and friends, he was not satisfied at all. In fact, he died pursuing a greater high, a greater satisfaction that could not be found. So how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we get to being satisfied? Because all of us want it. When I was a young boy, I would listen to my dad say, Oh, how I long for glory, for heaven. And I remember one of my dad's favorite hymns of the day was when we all get to heaven. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. My dad has the absolute worst voice in the world. And he would belt that sucker out and like he meant it. And I remember one day I said, Dad, why in the world do you want to get to heaven so quickly? Is life here on earth that bad? To which he responded, the older I get, son, the more unsatisfied I become with the things of this world. The more I long for glory. As I get a little older each and every day, as I taste the things of this world and come up unsatisfied, the more and more, my friends, I long for glory. I long for the things of God. So how do we get there? How do we become satisfied? It begins with one of three things. I want to get down uh, to this. Now, I want to give you just some help because of the barn bash. I don't want to keep you till 3.30. Get rid of that last sub point in your outline. Hold back your excitement, but go ahead quietly and get rid of that last sub point because I'm going to end a little differently than I was planning. So the first point we want to address this morning is how do we become satisfied? How do we get there, God? He says... You will be satisfied. We want to get there. We need to understand it involves living in accordance, living in accordance with a godly requirement. God says, you want satisfaction? I'm willing to give you it, but I'm going to require something of you. And what it's going to require is us to hunger and thirst. Now, for many of us sitting here in church, these words fall upon deaf ears. Because in our worship... In our pursuit of God, we are half-hearted. You know, really, we want to hunger and thirst after the things of God, but we're too busy hungering and thirsting after the things that will make us feel good. And this fourth beatitude is going to call us to task because Jesus is reordering our private world and our priorities. So what does it mean? What does this beatitude mean? Write this down somewhere. To fulfill this beatitude means that we must seek after God alone. We must seek after God alone and find and find our total satisfaction in all that He is. It is to seek after God alone and find our total satisfaction in all that he is. That's what it means to hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. God says, I want you to hunger and thirst after me. In a nutshell, to hunger and thirst is, is, is taken from a song that we sing every once in a while, and that is Jesus must be our all in all. He's it. He's the totality of all that we pursue. He's the totality of all that we aspire to be. He is the great end of all that we do. Now right away, that begs the question, and it brings a multiple choice question to the table. We have a choice before us. Will we pursue the things of God and make Him our all in all? That will lead us to, A, to draw us closer to God. That will draw us, that we sit there and say, Hey, I'm not doing it on my own. I can't do it on my own. Every time I try to find satisfaction on my own, I fail. And so I'm going to God because He's God. And it will either draw us, A, that's the first answer you can take, or B, it will repulse us away from the things of God. And some of us right now are saying, I am hungering and I am thirsting, but God's the last place I'm going to get filled. And so I'm going to go because I know myself better. I know what I need. I know what I want. So I'm going to go after the things of this world and I'm going to do it. And I'll tell you, our neighborhoods are filled with these people. Our jobs and our schools are filled with these people. And they are great and wonderful people. But the problem is, is on that question of where they're going to find their satisfaction, instead of choosing God, they're choosing self, and they're choosing the things of this world. And sadly, some of us in this place today are doing the same thing. Though we say God is our all in all, with our mouths we sing that and and amen that, we are living and making decisions each and every day, pursuing the things of this world. And here's the thing. Jesus says we've got a hunger and thirst. So herein lies the issue. The issue is if we need to hunger and thirst, there's a need. There's a need that's built into this. To hunger and thirst means I desire something that I don't have. So when Jesus is addressing the people on the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing a group of people who are needy. And he's saying, all right, if you're hungering and thirsting, that means you have something that, or you don't have something that you desire. And so what we need to understand is there are two elements to receiving this right hunger and thirst. It begins, number one, with it being dissatisfied with our present situation. To hunger and thirst means that inherent within that idea of hungering and thirsting is lack or need. And what we need to understand is is that to hunger and thirst for God is an acknowledgement that in my present situation or the spot I am in this world, I find myself needing more. The longer I go without that need, the hungrier I become. The greater my thirst becomes. Now let me tell you something. A lot of us right now are not hungering and thirsting Because we are not dissatisfied with the present state of affairs in our lives. What I mean by that is that we have all that we could ever ask for. Our credit cards take care of any need on demand that we have. We've put our satisfaction in the things of this world, our house, our cars, our our money, even in the noble things of this world, our family, our friends, our status in this world, and we feel completely content with where we are at. And Jesus says, if you are going to truly be satisfied, then you need to be dissatisfied with the things of this world. 
You need to be dissatisfied. You see, the first step of hungering and thirsting is to do what Solomon did, is that is to look at all that he had, and he had a lot. And he looked at all that he had, his accomplishments, all of the, uh, the passions being uh, satisfied from a, uh, a, a female companionship aspect, all of the riches, all that he had. And at the end of his life, he said, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. It, it doesn't do anything in satisfying me. I need something more. And what we need to understand is that if we're going to hunger and thirst for God, it means that you and I must look at this world and be dissatisfied with what we have. To not be content that the things of this world will bring us the joy and contentment that God wants to give. But notice it involves also us being desperate, desperate because we are starving. We're starving. Now here's the problem. When it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, nothing in our experience today here in America will help us to understand the force of Jesus' words. Jesus isn't saying, blessed are those who are, uh, have their stomachs growling in between meals. Jesus isn't saying, hey, I've been talking for a while, and I know breakfast was a long time ago, and lunch is still a couple hours away, and, and you're feeling some rumbles in your, in your stomach, in your belly right now, uh, hoping for a meal to come. That's not what he's saying. You see, in the ancient world, and that's where we've got to put ourselves this morning because we don't get it. We've got food on demand. We're never hungry. I mean, some of us can't even make it home from church, so we stop at McDonald's just to hold us over on the commute. We're never hungry. We always got food at our disposal. And in the ancient world, there were always, the, these people always understood the threat of hunger. They lived in a land with scorching heat, with brutal season changes, sand and windstorms, all of which trying to farm and live a part of an agrarian society to do so without technology, not knowing what the weather was going to be like. And they would experience famine upon famine. And so people had come to learn and understand what it was not to live in excess, but to the bare minimum people understood that there was no guarantee of a meal tomorrow. That is why Jesus called them to pray, give us this day our daily bread. This is seen in the story of Elijah. Remember, Elijah has pronounced a famine, and the famine's got him hurting as well. Remember? There's no rain in the land, and for three and a half years, there's nothing. And, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's hungry. He's got nowhere to go. And he comes to a, a town where there's a widow with her son. And he comes in looking for a place to stay, looking for something to eat. And he comes into the door. He's hungry himself. And she says, hey, we've got nothing to offer you. We are about to eat our last meal and then die. This is the type of society these people were understanding and recognizing. So when we hear hunger and thirst, we've got to take ourselves out of go to the refrigerator or the cupboard to get a snack mentality. We've got to go to the mentality of these people did not know if they would have another meal to eat tomorrow. So when Jesus says hunger and thirst, he's talking about a people who are starving for provision who aren't just hungry in a little way, but in a massive kind of way. Psalm 63.1 gives us a picture of this. Oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you, for my soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no 
water. So it is with the life of the healthy believer in Christ. He or she never can get enough of God. We are perpetually starving, desiring more and more of Him. Now turn in your Bibles for a moment to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, because there is a a significance of what it means to hunger and what it means to starve. In Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 13, we are uh, shared the story of the prodigal son. And in Luke 15, starting in verse 13, we get a picture of a man who's hungering and what his response is compared to a man who is starving and what his response is. Now remember the story, the prodigal son goes to his living father and he says to his dad, hey, I know you're not dead, but I want your inheritance. I don't know if you don't know this or not, but like in the Near East culture as it is in the Western culture, you just don't do that. Okay? I, I, I would love to be there when you go to your old man and say, hey, I know you're not dead yet, but I want your money. Give me the inheritance as if you were dead so I can go and, and do what I will with it. It's not good. And that's what this guy does. He's so selfish. He, he goes to his alive father and acts as if he's dead. Give me my inheritance. And in verse 13, notice it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Notice what it says in the ESV. He says, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Let's stop there. The prodigal son is hungry. He's not starving, but he's hungry. And I want you to know that when we are casual people with regards to our hunger, we will quickly try to find provision on our own. So be careful, Christian, who is not hungering and thirsting for God, because when you find yourself hungering, you will inevitably go and try to find uh, solutions to your hunger on your own. What does he do? He finds himself in a pig pen, and he says, man, hey, I never thought I would say this, but, but some of this stuff sure looks good that the pigs are eating. When we enter into the world and we are hungry and God is not satisfying us, listen to me, you will be amazed at what you will consume. And some of us say, well, I would never do that, and I would never do that evil thing, and I would never do that uh, depraved thing, and and I would never break my vows to my family and to my spouse. I would never do that. Just allow yourself to be hungry enough. And you'll eat stuff you never thought you would eat before. Here's the guy. He had the finest fare when he was eating at his father's table, and now he's hungry. He's hungry, and he can't be satisfied, so he's willing to get down and dirty into the muckety-muck of the pig pen to eat. He wants to fix it on his own. Let me tell you something. If you find yourself hungry, many times you'll try to fix it on your own, no matter how dirty you have to become to get it. Now, notice what the text says. It goes on, and it tells us that this hunger continues. 
It says, and he went to the pigs, what they were eating, and no one would give him anything. I mean, he's fighting over the pigs, over food, that is. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Let's just stop there. Some of us are hungering right now, and we're taking our hunger into our own hands. Let me, let me unpack this for you. It's very simple. When we hunger, we will deal with it ourselves. When we are starving, we run to Jesus. And when we starve, what does the guy say? He begins to think back to where he was before his estrangement. Hey, before this issue I had with my father that I made on my own, I had it really good, and I used to live like a king. And even if that means I can't live like a king, I'll humble myself and I'll be one of the servants because even the servants have bread. But I'm starving here, and I need some food, and the only place I can go to get food is my father's table. Let me tell you something. When you starve, spiritually, it will lead you to God's arms. And God is there, and the story is beautiful because as the son is far off, the father comes running. And that's what God wants us to do. God wants us to see us starving in our place, reminded of what things used to be like. Remember, in the book of Genesis, the reason why we have Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is to remind us of what we could have had. And to remind us that in the place we are now, it doesn't have to be that way. And so the reminder needs to be, man, Adam and Eve sure had it well in the Garden of Eden. Long before they blew it and long before we blew it, we had it pretty good. And I want to go back to that because that's where satisfaction is found. And so he runs back to his father. And we need to run back to God. We need to starve for this righteousness. Now notice, as we move on, It isn't that we just live in accordance to this requirement, but God's got to do some things. Notice point two, that it it means that we have to rely on God's righteousness. To hunger and thirst means we got nothing. And And the best way to illustrate this is some of us think in our spiritual lives that when we come to Jesus, we come like it's a potluck. We come with our dish to pass, right? Here's what I have to offer. I brought this wonderful casserole, and it's really good. And, and, and I, I don't, I, I mean, who can ever think that I'm going to bring all the food, but I can bring part of it? And some of us are bringing, and this is what the Apostle Paul says, I've got to get rid of a righteousness of my own. You don't bring anything to the potluck. Let me get this out. Of, when it comes to our righteousness, it ain't a potluck. You don't bring anything. You come empty-handed, and you come starving. And so what we need to recognize is we don't come with what we've got. Uh, Paul says, I've considered all things lost. It's rubbish. What I'm bringing ain't a beautiful casserole. It's my junk. It's full of maggots. It's full of all kinds of grotesque things. Here's what I bring in a casserole dish. And everybody looks at it and says, hey, you brought nothing, man. That's sick. Get that out of here. And what God does, a beautiful picture, especially for a guy that preaches at your church, 
for us to get righteousness, God's got to be the caterer. Did you get that? Can I tell you one of the great things about being the caterer is you, you control most events. You don't show up, the event goes downhill really fast. Now that puts a lot of pressure on you, but you've got to understand that. I, I did an event yesterday here at the church for Servant Works. And by the way, we didn't, we didn't share this. Make sure you stop by out there. That thing that is in your way with all those pictures is there for a reason. That's talking about how uh, the sex trade in Thailand is going on. And we want you to read about that and the, the sad things that are taking place. And Servant Works is the ministry that we help to remove ladies from that. And we had a banquet here last night. And I was catering it. And I'll tell you, that banquet doesn't go well from a food standpoint if I don't show up. Why? Because everybody came empty-handed. They came empty-handed to the dinner, fully recognizing that someone was going to bring the food. Let me tell you something. The only thing that we come to the table with is a hunger and a thirst. And God is the celestial caterer who says, I'm backing the trucks up full of grace and mercy and love and righteousness, and I'm going to set the table, and all you need to do is bring your appetite. So stop bringing your garbage. Leave that at home. Leave that because I've got plenty of food to go around. You will walk away satisfied from the meal. And so what we need to recognize is we've got to rely on that. We've got to rely on God's righteousness. It's not a righteousness of our own. We don't bring it to the table. Remember, we're spiritually poor. We are bankrupt. But what is this righteousness? Notice there's a spiritual concept there that we've got to understand. The spiritual concept is the question, what is this righteousness? Whom does it impact? And where do I really go to experience it? Now, it's imperative if we want to get this. I want to be satisfied, so i got to know where I'm supposed to get it. We need to understand where some people say this blessing comes, this satisfaction comes. Uh, more of the liberal scholarship of Scripture, those who hold a more liberal bent, would say that this righteousness is a social righteousness. Write that down somewhere in your outlines. It's social. In other words... We are to be righteous in our dealings with those who hunger and thirst. And what that means is, is if we are going to call ourselves righteous, then we are going about meeting the needs of those who are hungry and thirsty in our society. Now let me tell you right away, that is not the intent of the passage. You can strike that out. It is not a social, if you will, gospel towards reaching the lost. But let me tell you, we are called to reach those who are hungry and thirsty. We are called, and I will say this, the believer will be, the true believer will be the most generous person around. That when they see those who are hungry and thirsty, they are quick to address that physical thing as giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. But that's not the intention of what Jesus is saying. So the social righteousness, that's not it. Number two, write this down, it's not a righteousness that we get at salvation. And what I mean by that is, what people say is, what Jesus is saying is to a group of unbelievers, you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, come and you will receive salvation. Satisfaction is salvation. And, and so those who hunger and thirst for salvation, they'll get it. Scratch that one out. Well, there is a sense of understanding of how you could get that from the passage. Herein lies the problem. The Bible says over and over again that the un, uh, 
spiritual man, the uh, sinner, does not seek after God or the things of God, and that the spiritual things of God are unlearned to them because he is not spiritually discerning. And so what we then are saying is, is that, yeah, okay, come even though you don't want to come. Hunger and thirst, even though the Scripture says you don't hunger and thirst. And so what we need to recognize is, is even for us to hunger and thirst for the things of God, God must put that hunger and thirst within us. He has to create that within us. And so what does this mean? The spiritual concept that he's talking about is, is a theological word that some of you may not know. It's the, a sanctifying righteousness. And what that means is he's talking, and remember his audience, he's got various audiences. He's got those who really don't care anything that he's saying. They just don't like him. He's got those that are there because they're hoping once he gets done talking, the, the magic show will begin and the, the uh, signs and wonders will begin to take place. He'll start healing people. And then there are those who are following him because they are spiritually bankrupt, because they hunger and thirst for the things of God. Remember, around him are his disciples. And I believe that Jesus in these Beatitudes is not talking to anyone and everyone. He's talking to his disciples. You want to follow after me? This is what following Christ is all about. And so what he's saying is, happy is the man who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and who has all of his appetites and needs given over to the care of God. Now we need to understand this very clearly this morning. That as a follower of Jesus Christ, what that means is I don't hunger and thirst for God for one time or one moment in my life, but each and every day I am hungering and thirsting for God. Now, within the text, and it's hard to unpack this, if you want to have a conversation about the original languages of this, I'll do this afterwards or at the barn bash, we can talk about it. But in the original Greek language in which this is written, the way it cites Jesus is as if, if Jesus mixed up his sentence and put words out of place, and when, a, when in the Greek language that happens, it means Jesus is saying something with great effect behind it. And what Jesus is saying is, is don't just come to me for a meal. Don't hunger and thirst for part of me. Hunger and thirst for all of me. All that I have to offer. Now let me explain what I mean by that as a way of application. Some years ago, Amanda and I went on a, a cruise. And we had never done it before, but what I heard was that on cruises you eat like a king, and I'll tell you, you eat like a king. It's awesome. And I remember sitting at the, at the table the second night. Now, you know, first night you just do what everybody else does because you don't have a clue of what you're doing. And the second night I got a little more bold in, in my response and said, hey, this is my vacation. I want it my way right away. And, and I'm, I'm going to ask some questions, see what can happen. I'm reading the menu. And the menu all looks great. It's hard to decide on what I want. And I say to the waiter, I said, man, it's really hard to decide. It's too bad you can't get one of each. And the waiter says, well, sir, we can give you both of those entrees if you'd like. Aha. Uh -huh. I would like both of those. Very much so. Then the light bulb goes on, and I say, hey, what if I, and you, do, you always do it because you don't want to sound selfish, okay? What if there was someone who wanted all of the menu? Could you do that? To which the waiter turned around, looked at the kitchen, and went like this. I'd like died and gone to heaven. 
everything on the menu, every appetizer, every soup, every bread, every entree, every dessert was set before your pastor's place. Of which Amanda was horrified. And I ate like a king. I mean, I'm telling you, whoo, it was glorious. Okay? That's what God wants to do in our lives. You see, you and I, we look at the menu, and we look at, and the menu says at the top of the menu, the menu of God's righteousness. And you say, well, I'll have a little of this for an appetizer, I'll have a little of this for the entree, and just a little sweet righteousness at the end of my meal. God says, that's not what I want you to hunger and thirst for. I want you to hunger and thirst for the whole menu. You see, understand this, Christian, that God wants to empty the kitchen of His righteousness for you. Do you get that? He wants to give all of himself to you. But what it means is that you've got a hunger and thirst for that. And some of us are watching our spiritual waistlines and saying, well, I'll just have a little of this, just a little of that. You have a locale version of holiness that I can have. Put it on a little. Don't go too crazy. In fact, put it on the side because I'll put on as I need. And what God is saying is, as you hunger and thirst, I want to clean the kitchen out for you. Now, here's the thing. I became the central figure in that dining room table. And what took place was, I saw more and more waiters looking to the kitchen and doing this. Why? Because when we see someone fully satisfied, it's contagious. And I will tell you, you will do yourself well in the way of evangelism if you would eat in the things of God and come out with your bellies full of of good things with God. And people are going to say, hey, wait a minute, where did you get that? I, I want that. Two guys down at the table next to me said, hey, I want that. I want what that boy's having. I don't know who he is or what he's all about, but he sure looks happy, and I want that. And when you and I are satisfied on the things of God, people will start to ask questions. And the sad thing is, we're trying to peddle a Jesus that doesn't satisfy us. Why in the world do we think it would satisfy anyone else? And so we need to be satisfied in Him, hungering and thirsting for all of the righteousness of God. And then you'll be amazed at how the floodgates will open up when people say, hey, wait a minute, in a dry and weary land, I want what He's having. Give me that. And then we say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the one that satisfies. So it's a sanctifying concept. Now notice, how do we know if we're there? I need to keep moving here, but how do we know? It is seen in the myriad of choices we make. It is seen in the myriad of choices we make. How do you know if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Look back. What did you eat this week? Were you eating the things of God? Were you starving for the things of God? Or was it more about you and more about pursuit of the things in this world? What was it? Now, herein lies the problem. We have hunger. And our hunger is going to lead us to look to fulfill our needs. And, and here's the, the problem. There's a lot of great things that are being advertised that aren't so great. And we judge each other because we're like, can you believe how much cake that person ate? 
I mean, did, did you see on Badal's plate how much meat and potatoes was on there? I don't struggle with that. And I don't know why he struggled. Why can't he just watch what he's eating? Here's the problem. Each of us in our sinful natures have different appetites for different things. And what we do is we fight each other about whose appetite is right and whose appetite is wrong. And really what it is is we're all wrong in our appetites apart from God. And we need God to restore the right appetites in our lives. So how do we do that? I'm going to get some help from a totally secular group called Weight Watchers. How do we get there? I'm going to apply what Weight Watchers says to the physical side of things to the spiritual. And there are three things. Write these down. We're not spending a lot of time on it. My last point's really short, so we'll be out of here by 4.30. So here's what it is. Number one, watch what you eat. Watch what you eat. Weight Watchers says if you want to be a physically healthy person with a physically healthy diet, you need to log everything that you put into your mouth. Write it down. Write down, if you had a piece of bread, piece of bread. Write down, had a salad, had a salad. Write down, ate the whole uh, apple pie at Barn Bash, whole apple pie at Barn Bash. Why? So we know what we're consuming. If we don't know what we're consuming, then we'll never be able to get rid of the things in our lives that aren't supposed to be there. And so my question for us this morning is, are you watching, keeping track of what you're eating spiritually? Are you recognizing that there are things that you're putting into your life that, that you acknowledge that? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, and I'm watching this television show, and this is what this show is doing and saying. And so i got to log that, and, and here's the spiritual things that I've done and, the, and the, the godly disciplines that I've put into my life. And I'm writing those down so there can be a reckoning, a record, so we can start building on something. If, if, if you go to Weight Watchers and say, well, I gained three pounds, and they'll ask the question, well, how did you do that? Well, I don't know. And some of you are fighting sin and temptation. You're saying, I'm falling to sin and temptation. And the pastor comes to you and says, well, why are you falling? I don't know. So you need to watch what you eat. Number two, you need to weigh your options. Weight Watchers has every kind of food into a point system. And so what they do is they say every food is is edible. You can eat anything, but it's going to cost you. And so you've got to ask the question, are your daily allotment of points worth that snack that you're really longing for? Is it really worth it? And so before you put something in your mouth, you are thinking through the consequences of that choice. Spiritually speaking, you need to look at the world and what it's offering, and you need to stop and ask the question, what is the consequence of me consuming that sinful thing? What is going to happen as a result of it? And is it worth it? You see, some of us are willing to put all kinds of garbage in our mouths spiritually because we aren't asking the question, is it worth it? And when our marriages are broken up, when we find our relationships are all out of whack, when we find our fellowship with God is gone, we sit there and say, what happened? And what it is is that we were eating with reckless abandonment, not thinking of the consequences that what we were putting in our mouth may cause a spiritual heart attack to happen in our lives. So we need to weigh our options. The final thing is we need to welcome the good stuff. Weight Watchers in their program says, hey, there are certain types of food. You can have as much as you want of them. Fruits, vegetables, some other healthy stuff. You can eat all of that to your heart's content. And here's the thing. Spiritually speaking, God says when we submerge ourselves into God's word, he doesn't say, hey, watch your portions. He said, eat up. 
taste and see that I'm good. Eat up because this will bring you life. Eat up. You don't have to have any guilt. Just You just keep eating and eating and eating because this honors me and this is good. And, and, and it took me so long to understand this. Because to give you a perfect example of this is the issue of intimacy. The world says have intimacy because that's what your body says it needs. So, so go get it. And go get it anywhere you can, with whoever you can, with no strings attached. And we're learning, and we know there's all kinds of strings attached to that. But when a man and woman come together, and they are within the confines of, of uh, the bonds of, of marriage where they have committed to themselves and to God uh, that they are going to stay monogamous and true to one another. God says with that intimacy, knock your socks off. Now wait a minute. Over here God says, forbid. Over here he says, have a ball. And what we need to understand is when we consume the good things of God in God's timing and in God's ways, he, he takes off all of the handles on it. He says, go to it. Have a blast. And some of us need to reorder our Christian lives to understand we need to watch what we're eating, we need to weigh our options, and then we need to welcome the good things of God. And notice what happens when that takes place. When we welcome that good stuff in, God says we will be satisfied. We'll be satisfied. That is point three, the great reward. The great reward. God says, he bookends it. You'll be blessed and you'll be satisfied. I love that my Savior, on his, in his earthly ministry, in earthly days, spoke Aramaic. Aramaic is the ancient Assyrian language. And so there are words that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, that we have written down in Aramaic, that are still true in my Father's native tongue of Assyrian. The word blessed is the word breka. Okay? You got to roll the tongue. If not, it's some other word. You got to roll the tongue. Breka. Okay? Breka means blessed. When you would say someone to have a blessed day, a breka kind of day. When Jesus says blessed, breka literally means that every blessing you can think of is in a pool. Okay? And when you tell someone breka, you literally are saying, I want to submerge you into that pool of goodness. And so when Jesus says, Brika is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. What Jesus is saying in his native tongue is, I want to submerge you in my blessing. That when I pull you out, you're dripping wet with it. It is the picture that the Greeks used of baptizo, to plunge into and to pull out, that we are just full of the blessing that God has. That's brika. That's what that means. And so when we are blessed, we will be satisfied. So how does this satisfaction come? Notice a couple things about it. Number one, it is a complete satisfaction. Write these passages down, John 4, 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If it, didn't, if it doesn't 
convince you. How about Psalm 107.9? For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with all good things. Rika. Now when is it going to happen? Is it just one time? No, it's eternal. Luke 22, verses 29 and 30. And I assigned you as my father assigned to you, assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. There's a day coming where we'll sit around the table of God and we will enjoy the finest affair. But it begins, it starts with an invitation. It starts with an invitation. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3 say this. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Listen, that your soul may live. God is inviting you to his table. God is saying to you, come. I want to give you the best of the best. I want to submerge you into my blessings. I want to give you the best food and the best drink. But what it means is you and I must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And when we do that, the scripture says, and all those other things will be added to us. So we are what we eat, my friends. And the tragedy is that in our world, our world is hungering after sex and wealth and violence and excitement of worldly passions. And sadly, many of us sitting in church today find ourselves nibbling on such things, making our diets as pathetic and empty as that of the world. But Jesus has provided the menu. And righteousness is set before us. And the method is our desperation and the result is satisfaction now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, take to heart what you have to say to us. That we would truly be hungry and thirsty for you. Lord, I pray that you would allow us in our desperation to see by the Spirit's help our need and that the answer is found in you. Lord, I pray as we go out into this world this week, we would truly watch what we're eating spiritually, that we would weigh our options versus temptation to righteousness, and that we would welcome the righteous and good things that you offer us. Oh Lord, I pray that in that we would truly find the satisfaction that you promise for us, not only in this life, but in the one to come. So Lord, empower us by your Spirit now as we leave this place, and we pray that we would truly Seek after you and your kingdom and righteousness first, knowing that satisfaction will come as a result. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.